Hello and welcome to Harvest Church Podcast. Harvest Church is based in sunny Durban, South Africa. We are a family of believers who are passionate about Jesus. We really hope this message inspires you today. Father, I just thank you that as we come to your word and we speak about prayer, I just thank you that this won't be informational, but Lord, it'll be transformational and inspirational, that it'll just uh, increase our capacity to engage with you, receive from you, release that which you're pouring into our lives. Jesus, I thank you that it's something that was so visible. The disciples said, teach us to live like you live in this way of engaging and walking in relationship with the living God. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that you come and you empower it and we get to live just in, in the oxygenated presence of you working in our midst and uh, filling us with life so that it bursts forth in every way. I pray that for each of us here and our households and families in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in a series called The Best Place to Live. And uh, I just felt to look at that after um, just some of the things that have gone on in, uh, or going on around the globe and gone on in KZN. And really looking, let's go beyond what the UN says are the key criteria for gauging what livability looks like. And let's look at what the Word says and biblical uh, principles, scriptures, promises that we can hold to of what a life lived to the full in a sense of a place of belonging where we can know we're safe, yet there's adventure and something to live for and live beyond ourselves for. What does that look like? And so last week we looked at what it means to live in the house of worship the place of worship. And this week, I'm wanting to look at the house of prayer. Uh, it's one, if we can just realize the, the beautiful invitation we have to live in this place of prayerful relationship, intimacy with the living God, we can experience life to the full. And so, uh, I want to start with a scripture that's a little bit more pointed and sharp, and we're going to look at the first reference, which is in Matthew 21, verse 13, um, of this particular scripture, and then we're going to continue to read it in Mark 11, which goes deeper, and it's got a couple other components I want to pull out. But this is what Jesus says. My temple should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. My temple should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And uh, as I opening scripture, um, I hope that I haven't caused you to brace and put your safety belts on, because this is meant to be an encouragement. Um, but it, it takes unfolding it a little bit and looking a little bit deeper at what's coming here that we can grasp that which we need from what Jesus is saying. And as I mentioned, it's one of the harshest indictments we'll see that come from Jesus, and it's made all the more sharp because it's him bringing it. But I think what he was speaking against was religious busyness that seems to grab us, spiritual consumerism and commercialism that creeps in where everything becomes a little bit more transactional. And I think this is what was moving Jesus in this moment when he comes and he clears out the money changers and he clears out the sellers of the religious wares that are operating in the temple courts. And he's impassioned uh, to, to bring a priority back to what it means to have prayer as, as an active part of our lives. And it's a great encouragement for us today as well. And really, the first point I want to bring is this. We're going to look at five points around prayer. And the first one I want to bring is this, is God desires prayer. 
It's not that he requires it. It's not that he demands it. I want to say he desires it. It's a different thing. Desire means this. It's not something I'm just subjecting you to, but it's something that is coming from the deepest part of me. It talks about a, um, a, a longing within the heart, and that's what he desires, us to be a people of prayer. We're going to look at why and what that means in just a moment, but let's just go back to Jesus. Why was Jesus so impassioned by what had taken place? Why did he find what was going on so offensive with the money changers and with the sellers of the religious wares? I mean, if you look at it, they were making the prayer and the sacrifice and the worship at the temple more readily accessible to the masses because people were traveling from far and wide to come and to come and to worship at the temple. But they would be coming from different regions, they wouldn't have money from that region, so it was hard for them to give. They wouldn't be able to carry the, the pigeons and the goats and the rams, whatever it might be, to sacrifice at the temple. That would be a little bit hard. And so it made sense that when they got there, there were people that could change the money and that there were people that could provide them with the, the livestock to sacrifice. And so we look at this and we think, actually, they're making things a little bit more convenient. They're serving the needs of the people. But Jesus would have none of it. When we look at the response in his heart, he, he wanted none of that. And some of us think it's a, a bit of a broad attack um, just on anything where you buy and sell something in a church setting. I know that we had some people when we opened the coffee shop a while back that were concerned, and rightfully so, because you think, hey, but the Scripture says that. And So what really is going on in Jesus' heart? Let's look a little bit deeper to find out what his main objection is. And I think Jesus' main objection to this and what's happening is that he's objecting to people who are tempted to reduce religion, as I mentioned, to a commercial transaction, just to a business deal or exchange, when really it's a relationship. It's something where we have trust and love and we connect and there's actually a, an intimacy that's involved. And when that gets reduced, I think Jesus takes notice and it is something that is offensive. He's not offended. We know that he was never offended, but it was offensive, and so he went on to the offense, and he changed the situation because he wanted us to recognize the importance of a relationship with God rather than just merely, merely looking at a, a business exchange. Because here's the thing. If I sacrifice this for you to provide that, if that's what it is, if I'm going to come and sacrifice this and then, God, you provide that, what that is is it's paganism. It's paganism. It's exactly what the religious, uh, sorry, what the prophetic leaders had spoken up against the religious leaders of the day. They were saying it's a substituting of religion by adding merely external demands on us rather than a heart motivation. And so they were uh, crying out about this, and then Jesus comes and models it out in this moment. And it's quite interesting, because if you read 1 Samuel 5, verse 22, and we'll put it up in, the, in a moment. Um, speaking of King Saul, who lived 2,000 years prior to Jesus, and this is 100 years before there was the temple, this is what this verse says. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is much better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. You see, here's the thing. God is less interested in your sacrifice and he is less interested in whatever else you can muster up or try and do for him. What he wants is he wants you. What he wants is he wants you. Because before he wants your sacrifices, he wants your attention. Uh, I'm looking after my little six-year-old Mitch because Leanne is somewhere in the air 
flying to uh, Seattle at the moment. I would think where she should be if I try and calculate it. Um, and so I'm looking after my six-year-old, and it's a terrifying prospect. Um, <laughs> last night was interesting. I'm missing her already greatly. And uh, anyway, waking up with her, and he told me, this is how mom holds my hand, and this is, I'm like, does mom brush your teeth in the morning, wear your clothes? It's, it's an adventure. But um, the one thing I've discovered with my six-year-old is he says, he wants my attention consistently, uh, constantly. He's like, Dad, I want you to play with me. And when I'm tired of playing, it's like, okay, Dad, I want you to watch me play. He, he just he demands attention um, because he loves that. He loves the involvement. He loves the connection. He loves the, that we're not separated. Even though we're close, I can feel separated, but let's be close and be connected. And it's beautiful from a six-year-old. But it's amazing when the living God he wants you and he wants your attention. The living God, you, your attention, because he desires it. It's, it's, it's an incredibly beautiful thing. And before, it's about giving anything from your hands or getting anything from his hands. It's about being face to face, your face to his face. Prayer is about a relationship. And this contrasts with religion as a transaction where we try to give something to God to get something from God. This contrast, this is prayer. It's a different thing. It's the opposite than making deals or trying to use rituals. You see, faith is friendship with God. It's being a friend of God where we, we enter into this relationship and we're not just taking it for granted, but we're nurturing it because you know what? We want to grow in our relationship with God. You know, they say one of the challenges in relationships is we get into them and 20, 30 years down the line, we discover that we haven't grown in those relationships and the way we communicate and love and care and, and engage with the person we're with. In our relationship with God, we want to nurture and grow in it. And prayer is the way that we get to do this. So firstly, God desires prayer. But secondly, as I've said, prayer is paying attention to God. It's being in that place that we live in and live out of our God-given relationship that we've been invited into and blessed with. And uh, last week I spoke on the house of worship, and I was saying worship is more than just coming to church for an hour and singing, but it's an ever-enlarging capacity to dwell in the presence of God in season and out. That's what it is, worship, that we stay in that moment. And very similarly, if when we look at prayer, it's the same invitation to live in this house of prayer, to live in this place of prayer. It's not just that we visit now and then. It's not that we just learn to pay attention to God's presence here and now when we're here, but it's in the ordinariness and in the dailiness of life that we are aware of him, that we are giving him attention, that we are engaging with this relationship we have. This praying without ceasing, it means relationship without stop. It means it's not a coming in and out of, it means we live in and we live out of that place. We commune with God. Psalm 81, verse 14 to 16 says this. There's some verses preceding it. It's basically saying, if you will listen to him and follow his ways, you will be fed. Simple as this. If you will listen to him, Follow his ways, you will be fed. But some of us just don't believe his heart. We don't believe his character. We don't believe his nature. We don't believe his invitation or promise. So we rather say, you know what, I'm going to listen to all the noise that's going on around. Use 24, wow. L listen to all the noise that's going on around, and I'm going to make my own way. I'm not going to pay attention. I'm going to follow the influences, and I prefer that one. I'm following there. And we wonder why we're not nourished or satisfied or seemingly fed. We feel starved spiritually, emotionally, mentally, every area. 
we wonder why. Psalm 81 verse 14 says this, I will feed you, saying only listen, only follow, and I will feed you. And it talks about abundance here, finest wheat. Not just any wheat, finest wheat. You know, Israel were known for that. They would have their enemies coming who would plunder wheat from them. And he says, I'm gonna feed you finest wheat and honey from a rock. So what he says is, when you listen to me and follow me, I'm gonna feed you delicacies from the most unlikely and unpromising place. Doesn't matter what it looks like. Doesn't matter if it looks like sheer rock, that nothing can come from the situation. I'm between a rock and a hard place. I've got nowhere to turn. He says, listen to me, follow me. I'm gonna cause honey to come from the most unlikely and the most unpromising place, and it's gonna be a delicacy because that's what I do. You see, life bursts forth in the place of attentiveness and submissiveness. Let's put that on. I'm not saying this as that quote. I'm not saying this as a heaviness or weight. I'm saying this as an invitation. Life bursts forth. Where's the best place to live? Let me tell you where life is bursting forth. Life bursts forth in the place of attentiveness. When we're attentive to God and submissiveness, it means I'm gonna lay down my agenda because I believe you to be a good, good father as we've sung about. I believe you to be the way maker. I believe you to be the promise keeper. I believe you to be the hope in the midst of the darkness all around me. I believe you to be who you say you are and who you promised you will be. And so if we take a simple definition of prayer is this, it's paying attention to God. Prayer is paying attention to God, and your theologians will call it, and we know Brother Lawrence called it practicing the presence of God, and your theologians will call it the art of divine attentiveness. Isn't that beautiful? I wanna practice, I wanna become skilled in fly fishing, yes, but also in the art of divine attentiveness. It means that what happens here on a Sunday is not just kept to a Sunday moment or worship, but this encounter and experience becomes a blueprint for encounter and experience every day, every moment, every place, anywhere, because we're practicing the art of divine attentiveness. Really, it means this. It means our Father wants us to engage with Him, and He wants us to be engaged with Him, as with my six-year-old, the same with Heavenly Father for us he desires and he wants us. And it's not by accident that Jesus and Paul say this, that the true temple of God is our bodies. So where it says this temple will be a house of prayer, it's saying your body, this temple, my body, I want us corporately, this gathering, but more so than that, my encouragement is you, your temple, your body gets to be a house of prayer. You get to live in that way. That's where the, the presence of God, the life of God, the bursting forth of God the encountering of the wonder of who he is, that's where it takes place and spills out. And I think this is why Jesus' disciples, walking with him, saw something in his life. They watched him. Could have asked for anything. It's only one thing they asked him to teach them. They say, teach us to pray. They don't say, teach us how to pray because we're not looking for just some informational points to follow, like my points on the screen. Teach us to pray because we've seen something lived out in your life and what's lived out in your life is transforming life everywhere around you. And we could ask you for many things, but just teach us this one thing. Teach us to pray. I mean, they asked them to explain many things. They asked them to explain the parables. 
They asked him why they were powerless in a sense to heal a demon-possessed boy. They asked him what had caused congenital blindness in someone that they had encountered. They asked him questions around this, but only once did they ask Jesus to teach them something, this lesson on prayer. You know, if it was me, I might have been done a bit differently. I might have said, well, I'm a, I'm a minister. Lord, teach me to preach or to teach or evangelize. How do I really do an altar call? Lord, teach me this. Teach me how I lead because Steve Jobs says that um, if you want to make people happy, sell ice cream, don't be a leader. So what is leadership? Teach me to lead, Lord. I need to know that. Teach me how to counsel in the midst of all this post-traumatic stress disorder we're dealing with. Teach me how to perform powerful miracles in the midst of this virus that's sweeping around. Lord, teach me those things. Those are dramatic gifts that are inherently rewarding for me, but also beneficial to the community I'm leading. Teach me that. But the disciples don't say this. You know, we always look at the disciples. Well, when I say we all always do, it's me, and I just project a bit, so I think it's all of us. Um, but we think sometimes they're not the sharpest tools in the shed. They seem a little bit dull, and they seem a little bit um, naive to what seems obvious, you would think. But not here. Right here, they grasp something. Right here, they grasp what the center of a Godward life looks like, and they realize that it's prayer. It's relationship, it's attention, it's intimacy, it's a walking, it's a living out and living, um, living in and living out of what it means to be in relationship and trust with our heavenly Father. Because that sort of prayer, they've seen it, it bears fruit. My third point is this, prayer bears fruit. You see, here's something happening where we see the cleansing of the temple in this passage in Mark 11, and you can read through the entire passage. But before he gets to the cleansing of the temple, he curses a fig tree. I mean, this is a strange thing that's taking place here. What happens is, is Jesus and Peter and the disciples, they're walking, and on the way to the temple, they come across a fig tree that has leaves, so it shows the promise of fruit. But getting there, there wasn't fruit, and so Jesus cursed it. And then he goes and he cleanses the temple from all of that business exchange commercialism that was taking on. And then walking out with Peter again, they walk past this fig tree and Peter is astounded and says, Jesus, the fig tree that you rebuked has died from the roots up. And he's surprised by this. Let's just take a moment to read that. This moment, because what's happened, as I say, he's cleansed the temple, he's cursed the fig tree, but here he takes it as a moment to teach Peter on prayer. Peter doesn't ask about prayer, but it's just something Jesus launches into. Verse 20, in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Jesus responds, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say, it'll happen and it'll be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it'll be yours. Verse 25, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And I'm gonna add something further to that from Colossians when we end off. But let me come back to this. It seems unfair that Jesus curses this fig tree because we read in verse 13 that it was out of season. It wasn't the time that this fig tree should be producing fruit. And what's happening here is we're seeing Jesus doing an acted parable. See, many of the times he just uh, shares about parables and there's, there's wheat which represents 
responsiveness to God and of God, and there's weeds which represent hostility and rebellion, and he starts to liken those to different things. But here he's doing an acted parable. It means he's acting it out. It's like when Jesus walked on the water. It was to show that this kingdom life we call to live can overcome impossibilities. It was like when Jesus touched the blind man and his eyes opened. It was to show his power over darkness and that we call to bring light. And so this is another acted parable that we see Jesus doing. And it's to show God's view on fruitlessness how he perceives it, how he responds to it, and how he engages it, and that he doesn't entertain it. He doesn't entertain fruitlessness. And so we see this, and we think, but yeah, you know, in my life, maybe I'm a bit fruitless at the moment. But Lord, I've got a compelling reason. You know, um, in the right season, in the right moment, maybe, but this is just not the season for, for that to be active in my life and bear fruit. But that carries no weight with God. He wants fruit, not of you, but for you. He wants you to be living life that's bursting forth, fruitful. And fruit comes, we remember John 15, fruit comes from what? Once again, this isn't a you go and do. He wants you to be fruitful because it results from being in relationship with him. It comes from abiding. It comes from dwelling. It comes from remaining. It comes from living in and out of his life. That's where fruitfulness comes. So he's saying, really he's saying this, for those of you who feel, if, I'm not wanting you to feel condemned, really he's saying this, if there's fruitlessness in your life, that's not where I want you to be, because what that means is you're separated from me. That means that that thing is robbing life from you. I want you to come and be engaged with me, because when we are abiding together, and there's relationship and intention, uh, attention and invitation to live in that space together, fruitfulness will be the result. And I'm not putting up with anything less than that because I want the best for you and I want life to burst for, through for you. That's the, that's the heart of God. And it comes from paying attention to God. And so what, what catches me in this passage, is what surprises me is that Peter's surprised. Because this isn't the start of his journey with Jesus. I mean, he's been with Jesus here. This isn't just if you look at it three days in or three weeks in or three months in, but he's been journeying with Jesus for three years now. And I mean, he's seen amazing things. He's seen uh, a lunchbox that's been borrowed from a little boy feeding multitudes. He's seen water into wine. He's seen Jesus walking on water. He's seen the sick healed, the blind eyes open, the lame walking. He's seen demons casted out. He's seen the dead raised. I mean, he's seen amazing things. And so, and in that, we really see him surprised in all those things, maybe once or twice, but really. But here, Peter is so surprised. And it surprises me because it's almost like you watch a tightrope walker walking or dancing across this rope uh, along the Niagara Falls and you just don't really respond. But then you see that same person walk along a rail line track, which is quite wide, and you're like, wow, that's amazing. And you think, Peter, why are you so surprised? It reminds me of Acts 10 with Peter as well when he's in prison and he's facing execution and the church is praying for him. We're praying for Peter. And what happens is an angel comes and delivers him from that moment and he goes to the prayer meeting and he arrives at the door and knocks and a lady comes and she sees him and she runs back upstairs without opening the door and says, Peter's at the door. And everyone doesn't respond, amen, hallelujah, and celebrate that, but rather they say, you know what, it, it can't be him, maybe it's just his ghost. It's an angel, some translations say. If you read, some of the theologians said this, they had concoct ghost stories before they had credit Holy Ghost power. 
You see, they are happy to know there is supernatural. You know, it might be a ghost, but supernatural breaking into that practical, to reality. It surprises us. Why does it surprise us when we know who he is? And Jesus takes this moment of surprise to teach about prayer, and he says prayer is grounded in two things. It's grounded in faith and forgiveness. Faith and forgiveness. And I want to say we need to be a people of prayer, living in a house of prayer, but we need to be armed in this moment. This time, where where the world is at the moment on a knife edge, relationships, schisms, divisions, even within the body of Christ, I want to say we need to be armed with faith and we need to be armed with forgiveness so that we can disarm what the enemy is trying to do. My fourth point is this, prayer requires faith. It requires you to believe because faith is the fuel of prayer. Faith is the fuel of prayer. And we'll look at what believe means in a moment. But here in this moment, this is what Jesus is saying. If you believe, you can say to this mountain, move, and it will, it will respond. It'll do that. And there's this amazing authority that we can ask for anything as long as we believe, as long as we have faith, and it will be done because faith is the fuel for prayer to outwork. That's what Jesus is saying. But there's a bigger picture here that I, I want us to know because so often we reason our prayers from how it will unfold just from my life, and we need to get into the grand picture and scope of what's happening in the heavenlies throughout history with God's kingdom that's not only in me, but it's advancing through the ages and through me. What's taking place there? Well, when Jesus said this, they say that he would have been looking at the Mount of Olives as he spoke about speaking to this mountain and it'll move, but he would have been uh, beholding the Mount of Olives, which were four summits, 2,500 feet above sea level. And this is what, um, this would have been the picture before him, and it would have been they say a reference to Zechariah 4.14. He would have been aware of this, knowing the scriptures. And Zechariah 14 verse 4, sorry, I said it wrong, not 4.14, 14 verse 4. Zechariah 14 verse 4 is, is described as the day of the Lord God Almighty, when the king returns to his own. Isn't that a beautiful description? When the king returns to his own. Other translations will say when, when the king comes and he reigns. But let's read it. On that day, so Jesus is standing before the mountain scene, Mount of Olives, and he says, you can speak to this mountain and it'll move if you believe. This is what Zechariah 14 verse four says. On that day, the Lord will stand on the Mount of Olives and it will split in two, half tumbling away to the north and half to the south. I mean, there's something that goes beyond me just praying little prayers that might benefit my life or not. And listen, I'm not saying that God God loves that. He wants to, I've said attention in the smallest detail. He wants you to bring everything to him, but I think he's going to way exceed and go way beyond what we're imagining when we start to engage faith in relationship that fuels our prayers for the kingdom moving. Because really what's happening here is more than just my own prayers outworking, but it's thy kingdom come, thy will be done sort of prayers. And I'm not talking about if it be his will sort of prayers. I'm saying about good, his good and pleasing and perfect will prayers, prayers that from his character and his nature and his promises and his prophetic destiny over us as a kingdom people. It's not a sitting back and a, and a disengaged, it's an engaged, kingdom engagement sort of prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And that's the heart of a life of faith and prayer is joining God in this kingdom adventure, joining God in the kingdom purposes that he has so that we can be a part of the outworking. That is what it means to be a 
a kingdom people. And that's what happens when we truly live a life that is prayer-saturated and it is Christ-centered. We start to get pulled up into the grand, sweeping, global purposes of God. And not only pulled up, but we get pushed forward into the advancement of the kingdom as we've been speaking about. And so this takes place as we start to have faith and pray prayers that take in the promises of God for His kingdom to move and advance. I am saying He cares about the smaller things. Please hear me. I'm not saying that. He loves all of the details. But there's a grand working that He wants to do in and through our lives if we'll be part of it and say, I want to be part of your story as it unfolds. And so we say it's attentiveness to God. It's to see his will being done. And that's why Jesus says, listen, you can pray, and whatever the desires of your heart are, God's going to give them to you. It's because he knows that in this attentiveness, in this abiding, that we are in the place where we are already living in that engagement with him. And when we are with God, I don't know if you hang out with certain people. I've got my friend Stuart Morrison sitting here, and I hang out with him, and I became a bass fisherman because Stuart was a bass fisherman, and I'm now a mountain biker because Stuart is a mountain biker. No, I haven't really ridden the bike, but I have it. I've got the gear. Everything that Stuart wears, I'm wearing, and so I'm a mountain biker. He's going this afternoon, and I'm looking after my six-year-old. But you see, something happens when you spend time with other people. You become like them. What's important to them becomes important to you your desires start to go in the same directions. And so you can, say, I, you can say, the Lord can say, you can pray confidently and your desires will come because he knows your desires have been shaped, they've been filled and they're being fueled by the life that he has because we are those that are with them. And so we get to pray in this way. And I love the way that Philip Yancey describes faith. He describes it as reverse paranoia. Reverse paranoia. And he says this, is what, this was the picture for him. He had gone to uh, play a game of paintball. Has anyone here done that? Paintball, I've done it once. And um, if Stuart does it, I'll do it some more. But um, <laughs> he had gone to this game of paintball. <laughs> and he was the, the, the security guard was giving him all the rules and regulations for what you need to do. And now standing in the demilitarized zone. That's the zone where you can feel safe. And he said, out here, there are no enemies. We're all friends. In this place, you put the sleeve on the gun barrel. You put the lock on the trigger. You take your finger off the trigger, and you point your gun downward. No one's going to shoot you here. But once you get beyond the zone, and you get beyond the perimeter where the game takes place, that is where your paranoia is real. They are out to get you. They are around every corner. They're going to shoot you in the back, and it's going to hurt. That is going to happen. And, and Philip Yancey takes this moment that he experienced, and he said, but faith is reverse paranoia. It believes that God is there, and he's ready, and he's going to pounce, but it's with his goodness. He's setting up ambushes of his goodness, of his kindness, of his love, of his grace to, to impact, influence, and flow through your life. He, and he says this, faith believes that God is good. We sing it, but faith believes that. Faith positions itself there. Faith is persuaded and convinced that God is good, that he is not out to get you, that he is for you, so that even when you go through tough times and it looks dangerous and it looks narrow and it looks like a small way, that you still trust that he is good because there's a reverse paranoia working. And as you walk through it, you know that there's fullness of life and it's expensivity to the place where he is leading you because I trust in him beyond what I can see, beyond what I'm thinking. Because here's the thing, don't you ever wish you could see the end from the beginning? Romans 8, 28 says this, God works all things to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
We get to see that I'm going to be in the fullness of his purposes and it's going to be good. So whatever happens, he's going to be working that each step of the way through whatever I might be facing. So pray believing, pray in faith that the kingdom comes and that his will is done in our life, that we can experience his deliverance, whatever the scene. Pray that the mountain will be split. Pray that Jesus will be lifted high, that he will arise, that he will rule and reign in the midst of what we are facing. Pray those prayers because the word pray, the word, sorry, believe in the Latin is the word credo and it means this, it means to give your heart. When you believe and pray believing prayers, believe in the Latin means credo, which means to give your heart. And the word believe in English is a derivative of the old English word beloved. So really this, to believe is to give your heart, and it's to beloved God. When we pray prayers of faith, it means this, that we are believing and we're giving our heart to him, and we are beloving him. We are falling into his love, and we are living out of that place. And lastly, prayer requires forgiveness towards vaxxers and anti-vaxxers, towards scientists and conspiracy theorists, towards wherever it needs to go. We can't be praying prayers, kingdom prayers, Jesus is saying, that are gonna affect change because it requires faith, but not faith in judgment, not faith in discrimination, not faith in pointing fingers, faith that's coupled with forgiveness because that's what Jesus looks like. And if we are gonna become more like him because we are spending time with him, he is a forgiving God that desires that none should perish, that hasn't come to condemn, but has come to bring value and worth to every individual. He reasons differently. I'm not anti-vaccine or anti-anti-vax, I'm anti this virus. And I'm praying, Lord, we need your wisdom your healing power, your divine power to be at work. Lord, we need to honor the health that you've given us and take take that seriously. And Lord, I bless those in the medical profession that you have gifted uh, this humanity with. And Lord, let us know when we need to be aware of what alleviates symptoms or not. But my first port of call is you. I'm grateful for you and I wanna encounter your power at work. I wanna honor what you're doing in me and I wanna honor those that you have placed around. That's my positioning, but I need to, it says have a a bearing of graciousness and forgiveness towards others. That's what what the scripture looks at if you look at it. So it's not when I look at Zechariah 14 verse four, it's not coming from when I look at Mark 11 where I think it's about cursing fig trees and about cleansing temples and braiding whips and throwing tables. Those things can be fun, but that's not this moment. It's not that I think, well, there's this prophetic word out of Zechariah with the Mount of Olives, and as I read further into that passage, it says that the enemy will be wiped out, and that's the promise we have in you, God. And that's why the Israelites Israelites love to pray this verse, because the enemies were going to be wiped out. But they missed the point of the prayer, because the promise of this passage was that they'd be with God. The promise of the passage and the point wasn't that the the enemy would come to a pay date where they paid for all the destruction they'd wrought with the Israelites. No, it was that the Israelites would come face to face with the living God. And here's the thing, what God chooses to do with our enemies is his business. But what we choose to do with our hearts is ours. And this is the challenge for us, our business is to beloved God. Our business is to give him our heart and to beloved God. But there's a deeper invitation, as I've said, and it's to be like God, not just to beloved him, but to be like him, gracious, forgiving, kind, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. 
We get to be those sort of people. And we get to, get to pray prayers where we believe, prayers where we forgive, and prayers that see the kingdom move forward. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. So, Father, we just thank you that we get to be a house of prayer. But not only are we a house of prayer, Lord, but we are individually people of prayer. And Lord, I want to thank you that even as we read that passage where it says that um, forgive so that you can be forgiven, I thank you that it's a done deal. I thank you, Jesus, that you came and by your blood through faith and grace, we get to walk as those who have been forgiven. And because that is our starting point, Lord, I thank you that it says in Colossians 3.13 that because the Lord has forgiven us, we get to forgive others. Not to try and be forgiven, but it's the overflow. And he who has been given, forgiven much will love much. So I thank you, Lord, that you arm us with faith and forgiveness and empower us to love much as we go out and engage with hurting humanity. I pray that in Jesus' mighty name. And together we say, amen, so be it.